Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. You probably know a young man, or several, who struggled to transition from adolescence to adulthood. He's in his 20s, maybe even his 30s, and seems lost and in limbo, unsure how to create an independent, flourishing life. Maybe you're this man yourself. My guest today has some ideas on what has gone wrong in these cases and how to break out of the debilitating cycles many young men, whom he calls emerging men, find themselves stuck in. His name is Gregory Kufakos, and he's a therapist, addiction counselor, and the author of The Primal Method, a book for emerging men. Greg and I begin our discussion with why many men get stuck in their transition from boyhood to manhood, Greg's own story of arrested and frustrated development, and how working as a 26-year-old under a 16-year-old manager was part of what he needed to do to move on from his dream of playing professional football. We then discuss why traditional therapy methods typically don't work for men, how Greg developed his own form of counseling that emphasizes getting outside the therapist's office to move, take action, and participate in real life, what Greg calls entering the agora, and why this approach is so effective. We also discuss the things that help young men move forward, which include Greg's concepts of emphatic challenge and holding the line, as well as finding good mentors and friends. And we end our conversation with what men can do to start nurturing their small, latent spark into a more powerful and purposeful fire. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash emerging men. Gregory joins you now via clearcast.io. All right, Gregory Kufakos, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So you are an addiction counselor, but you seem to have found your calling in working with a certain type of, I would say, young man, a young man in his 20s, early 30s, maybe. How would you describe the typical man you work with in your counseling work? So I, I work with young men, 18 to 35 they have on the surface a lot of different problems, mostly like you said, uh, you know, I'm trained and specialized in addiction. And with addiction comes a lot of other problems. But the main person that I work with is somebody who's getting stuck in the transition from, you know, boyhood or adolescence into manhood. Well, and I like um, in your book, The Primal Method, you start off describing this encounter of a young man that you would probably counsel with a young woman about her, about his same age. And like the young man's just sort of like no vibrancy, no life, no vitality. You can tell he's just, there's no, there's nothing like generative there. Nothing, there's no creative force. There's nothing, no vitality. And then you have this young woman come in and she's like, She's got spunk and spark and mm. vital. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a good, because I've, I've seen, I've met a lot of those young men you've described. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's, you know, that that is a true story. I, I remember, you know, going to the juice bar and just sitting there and, you know, a few times in a row, I'd see this young guy and not to pick on him, but that's why I said, this is our guy. You know, this is who we're talking about. It's somebody who is sitting slouched over. You know, you can tell nothing is going on in his life. He's totally disconnected. His face is kind of pale, but you know, he probably used to be somebody. So there, there's always that disconnect, you know, like who you were and, and who you are <laughs> and then where you're going. And and it kind of gets progressively worse. It can. And, and as you said, oftentimes it starts out that way, where you just sort of, a young man becomes sort of disengaged, doesn't know, listless, doesn't know where he's going in life. Mm-hmm. And then as a result, they end up in some sort of addiction, alcohol, drugs, et cetera. 
Right. Yeah. When you, when you don't know where you're going and you don't have clear guidance, the probability of you getting lost is high. And that's exactly what's happening. There's no, there's no clear, inspired, supported direction. And this is what we have, getting lost. And why do you think there's so many young men like that today? Like, what do you think has contributed to this uptick in men getting lost in that transition from boyhood to manhood? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a good question. You know, I will say from I haven't done a whole lot of speculating in terms of why that is, because the people that end up working or, or meeting with me, it's so obvious that there's a problem. I, I could do a lot of different speculation about it. I think on, if I'm giving an optimistic view, I would say that males, we are evolving and we need more than we got in the past. Like I was thinking about our conversation uh, while I was uh, taking a run this morning and I was like, you know, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't feed a man anymore to say, well, you know, when you get 18, you go to the army. And then after that, you, you marry your college sweetheart and then you work at the local, you know, wherever that just doesn't do it anymore. So I think part of it is that males are hungrier for a, a more, a deeper like purpose. And that is the responsibility of a culture, you know, of the community to help nurture what the young emerging men need. And, and that's not happening. So, so it's sort of that, uh, that is what's happening. Yeah. When you were one of these guys, you now counsel, mm-hmm. can you tell us your story? Cause I thought, I mean, it was, I thought it was really interesting. What, what, tell us about your story and how mm-hmm. did you get to where you're now helping men the way you used to be? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like, like you said, I, I, I am one of the men that I used to counsel. I had a whole lot of potential in life. I was born into a very, very good family. They gave me everything they could. In fact, you know, my town gave me everything, you know, the, the community. But I think, you know, for me, Obviously, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time like thinking about my own story, but I, I really resisted sort of going with the flow. And I, I never really wanted to follow what my society or what my culture was, was teaching me. I just, I just didn't want to follow, you know, uh, direction. I didn't want to follow guidance. I did have a saving grace, which was that I was an athlete and I put everything I had into that. But, you know, along with that, I, I started getting exposed to life and that included, you know, different, different drugs, different, you know, temptations, gambling, just overall bad living. And I ended up hitting a wall. And hit multiple times, and it was uh yeah, it was as you said, it was a it was a tough story. I don't really know what to say about it. It's very yeah. yeah. 
Well, just to be clear, you weren't just any athlete. Like you were playing D one football. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big deal. I mean, that's like like one percent of high school athletes will ever get to do that, right. and you you made it right. And I and I only started playing football when I was a junior. So for me, you know, it, it would it required a, a lot of dedication and a lot of work. And you know, if you had asked me at the age of you know seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. My only purpose in life was to become a professional athlete. That was that was it. And uh, yeah, I played Division One football, and you know, learned a lot of lessons from that. But yeah, it was uh, the top of the top. And as you said, during this time, you you meant you you hit multiple walls. Like you, mm-hmm. you know, incurred a lot of gambling debt, and then you started doing drugs. And then mm-hmm. you had these moments where you'd bounce back. And like football seemed to be your saving grace. Like you'd always like, well, I'm just going to rededicate myself and get disciplined for football. But then you reached this moment where you you pretty much hit rock bottom, and football was no longer there to save you. Uh, what what was that moment, and how did that serve as a turning point for you? Yeah, well, I had made my decision. I thought I made my decision to walk away from football. And I was kind of at a good place with it. I had a a number of injuries and I was really starting to broaden my horizon. And I was living out in Arizona. I was starting to get exposed to different, you know, forms of spirituality and, and martial arts. And I was kind of ready to move on and, you know, step into the unknown, so to speak. But I I was at the gym one day and the quarterback on the team at the time, Ortiz Jenkins, he and I were, were friendly. And I told him that I was, you know, I made my decision and I'm, I'm going to move on. And he challenged me and said, you know, you're leaving on their terms. You're leaving on the coach's terms. You're not leaving on your terms. And that, that really lit a fire under my ass. And I started to train, you know, to, to get back into football. But at the end, you know, I, I just couldn't, I I got my body back where I needed to, but I couldn't get my academics. I had failed out of school at that point. And I, I remember like I went in and I, I tried to get my grades changed to become reinstated. And it just, I couldn't do it, you know, and I remember walking out of the the building, sitting on the pavement and just bawling like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. And, you know, it was a very sad, but ultimately cathartic moment because I finally, and I tell this to a lot of the guys that I work with, you have to let go of that old dream that you had. You know, there, there is a new dream waiting for you. My, my whole method rests on that premise that there is a purpose for you. There is a dream for you. And the only real person that's getting in the way of that is you and all of your effort. And I was a a classic case of that. I mean, life just couldn't get through to me because of my fixed ideas of what I wanted my life to be. And then after this moment, you you basically had to start from 
ground zero. You got a job at a, a coffee shop and you were taking orders from like a 16 year old kid. Yep. You were 22 yep. and really humbling. And you learned a lot in that process of just learning how to do a good work and be yeah. in humility. But how did you make that transition from, okay, we're going to a coffee shop to I'm going to become a counselor? How did that happen? Yeah. So first of all, I was 26. I was 26. All right. 26. All right. Yeah. 26-year-old getting bossed year old around. Was, yeah. Yeah. It was, was, you know, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just bossing me. You know, he was doing his job. But for me, that was that was very, very humbling. How I got to from there to where I am is I built my life up brick by brick by brick. And there were multiple times that I wanted to jump ship and build my life real quick because that that was my MO. You know, like all all young men want a life that they are happy with. They want they want to dream big. But what I didn't understand and what they don't understand is that that requires a process. That that requires time. And I, you know, when I felt like I had finally gotten myself into a natural rhythm of life where I wasn't moving too fast and I wasn't moving too slow, it became clear that it was time to think about a career. And I just did a very simple self-assessment and said, I realized that there are two things that I'm good at and two things that I like to do. I, I love to argue. And I love to search for the truth and argue for the truth. And so for me, that meant either going into law, which I know you you have your experience in, mm-hmm. or going to become a therapist. I, I felt like that I could I could reach people. And I booked, I had a childhood friend, a family friend who was a lawyer, and a family friend who was a psychologist. And I reached out to both of them and said, listen, I want to meet with you and I want to find out like what your, what is your life like? And the psychologist booked an entire hour for me free of charge. I went to his office, sat down, we talked about what it was like to, you know, to travel that path. And uh, it was really a great conversation. And the lawyer was so busy that even though he cared for me, he blew me off. And I said right then, you know, that's not the quality of life that I'm looking for. And so I went into psychology and, and went down that path. And now you're an addiction counselor. Well, mm-hmm. let, let's talk about uh, your approach to counseling because it's different. Because I think when most yeah. guys hear counseling, they think, well, I'm going to go to this office. I'm going to sit down in this chair. They don't have couches anymore. You know, you right. know, like they, it's just a chair, a nice <laughs> leather downgraded. chair. The downgraded, <laughs> and you're going to talk for you know maybe an hour. Yeah, that's not what you do. You no. you get the guy when the when a man comes to see you, you get them out of the office. Tell us about how you discovered that. Okay, just sitting down, traditional talk therapy doesn't work yeah. for men. Yeah, I mean, I I came from the addiction recovery industry, and what that industry looks like is that you. You, you have a lot of support and a lot of structure and a lot of leverage. So these guys, you know, by the way, I wasn't just counseling young men when I was in working in rehabs, but I was a very, very effective counselor in, in rehab settings. 
because you you have that structure, you can really, really lean into people and, you know, they don't have any other distractions in their life. And so I found a way to make that work. But when I transitioned to having my own practice, I tried what was what is practiced, which is, you know, people have their their hour long appointment and they come and they sit down and you talk. And I just found that doing that was not really reaching these young men. It just, nothing was really transforming. We might have a good conversation here or there. And also, you know, oftentimes there was nothing to talk about. So I, in a mix of just boredom, personally being bored and also seeing, more importantly, seeing that what I was doing wasn't working. I made a simple decision to tell the young men that I was working with that I would no longer meet with them in a physical office, that we were just going to go outside and do something. And I had no idea what something was. And it, it from that very simple decision to just walk outside over the course of three to four years, an entire method evolved. And I understood why I took them outside and what I was actually doing with them. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. No, you, you call this, so you, you call traditional forms of therapy dialogic right? So it's mm-hmm. talking. Right. Your idea of just getting them out there and doing something like the walking cure, you, you, dubbed, you also dubbed it the diakinetic action or right. the action axis. So motion right. or movement. It's like, what yeah. do you think, what do you think is going on? Like, why do you think it's just something about men? They're, they're hardwired. So they respond to action. For sure. But also, you know, by dialogic, I mean, you know, cognitive, or rational. And you know, we all have a rational part of us. It's the reason. And it turns out that young men don't even have that part of the brain fully developed. After I left the office, okay, I saw that instead of just relating to men at the rational level, or what I'm saying, the dialogic the dialogical level, I started to see that, that we were moving around. We were moving in the world. And I noticed that multiple things were happening. Number one, we, we were moving our physical bodies. And I saw that there was a power in just doing that. Okay. But also we were, we were doing things together and we were creating a bond. I was creating and we were co-creating a bond ourselves. So we were connecting. And then furthermore, they were learning how to enter the social world and build a life for themselves. So three main things were happening. And when I started to write the book and think about why this method was actually working, because in the beginning, I had no idea 
really what I was doing or what was going to happen. So this was only in hindsight. I, I saw that what we were really doing is we were reaching beyond the rational mind. We were reaching deeper to the part of our mind or the part of our being that connects with others and with the world. We were reaching into the part of our being that moves. And even the, the kind of more forward thinking psychotherapeutic approaches know that that is where the source of both the problem and the solution is. It's in how we connect and how we act. So, so by saying diakinetic, I mean that, that we're, we're moving in the world. We're moving in the world together. And yeah, it was, it blows my mind how, how, how this uh, taps into the deeper part of a young man. And it's much more exciting. Right. And you call this, you know, going out in the world, like entering the Agora. So you're Greek. Yeah. So you, you, mm-hmm. you brought in some of your Greek culture and heritage into this. And the Agora is just, it's the public. It's like where you go, where people interact. It's where, you know, Socrates, uh, you know, basically accosted people and asked them what, what is virtue. Yeah. But there's something about that, like you said, it, that's transformed. Like you're actually, I think one of the problems with traditional therapy is that you're, you're sort of taken out of the world. And like right. what you're doing, it can be theoretical, and it can be it can be useful, but then like the app, learning how to apply that in the real world can be hard. There's a disconnect. But if you're actually learning on the fly in the real world, there's something about that that can really transform somebody. Totally. And the beauty of that is that then all the by the way, I, I do have to say I'm not against talk therapy. I think it works well in conjunction with what I do, and also I believe that for emerging men especially. You need to act first and then talk about what you did. So does that make sense? No, that makes sense. And to be clear, like what you were doing with these guys is you were taking them out of the office. You might go for a walk. You might go to a coffee shop. But then eventually it was like, hey, let's go rock climb. Let's go to a boxing gym. Yeah. Um, and it, you let them sort of drive that. And, and, and that's the other thing too, I was really impressed by like how patient you were with this. Mm. It wasn't like, Hey, right, right away, we're going to go to a rock climbing gym. It was, Hey, we're just go to a coffee shop. And it might be three months before the guy was like, yeah, I'm ready to go do something else. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great observation. And I, I learned that because the, the young men that were coming to me initially, they were, they were pretty much the people that were not responding to traditional forms of treatment, right? So there, there, was, there was a real learning process that, that we went through to, to figure out how to do this. And uh, the guys that I was working with, I had to be very, very patient with them. And I learned a really important lesson, which is that it is very important for a man to, especially emerging man, to organically come to his own hunger of what he wants to do in life. So for me, it was a huge deal when these these guys that I started working with would say something like, I heard about this art exhibit in Tribeca and I'd like to go there. And also my uncle told me about an Italian restaurant in that area. For me, that was an example that they were creating a map 
of the world. And they were getting excited about exploring that map. And that's the beginnings I found of creating your life. You, you have to get out into the world. And that starts with, you know, exploring the world, poking around, getting excited about different things. And yeah, it's a, it's a very, a very patient process. You know, I work with a lot of different counselors and things like that. And I feel like a lot of times they, they suggest a lot of things to these young men and, and they don't understand why these young men don't just like follow what is being said. Like, but that there's way more power in that young man creating their own sort of, uh, hunger for what they want to do. Well, and another point you make that the reason you want to get these guys out there and doing stuff with them is that you understand, or you came to this understanding that emerging men, these young men, they need to see what it looks like, like actually see what it looks like, feels like mm-hmm. for another man. Like, what does it look like for a man to engage with the world? And like, you were serving that mirror for them. Like you were s- serving as that, that uh, pattern to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what I, I realized you know, after a couple of years of doing this, that I was seeing more progress. And by progress, I mean, these guys were getting inspired to live and they were starting to make changes in their own life. I saw that we were making more progress just by them seeing how I did it rather than me talking to them. So in, instead of me trying to talk to them and teach them how to build a life. I just went out into life with them and I, I was right alongside them. And they were able, I feel what they were able to do was they were able to see what I was doing and they were able to internalize this model of how you go out and enter life, how you attack life, how you give life your all, how you love life. The most important thing that we can do for young men is put a man that is further along in that journey right in front of him and just let him see how to do it. And there's a lot of science to back that up too. There's a whole part of the brain called the mirror neuron system, which I think it will be very important to understand that going forward, that really what happens is we mirror each other. We tend to mirror the most influential or the most powerful person that we're around. And yeah, we were, this is what I believe was happening with a lot of these young guys. They were just seeing what I was doing and they were copying it in their own unique way. So basically young men at this age need a mentor. Yeah, they need, they need somebody who can show them how it's done. You know, so if we want to call that a mentor, you know, there are different levels to how, how deep of a bond two men can create. And, you know, it gets into the highest forms of teacher student. But if you just have another man who is actively, genuinely pursuing the best version of his life in an authentic way, this is, this is a true inspiration. 
is a true inspiration. Yeah, I love that you described, you, you, you've experienced this in your own life. Even when you were a, a boy, so there's like this guy in your neighborhood mm-hmm. growing up who, just a cool dude, like had, had you know, mm-hmm. had a wife, kids, but had a job, was responsible, but at the same time, he didn't let that grind him down. It didn't seem like other men who were just like, I just going to sit down and watch Matlock. He was uh, right. He was out there doing stuff, even when it was in his 30s mm-hmm. and 40s. And you saw that and you're like, man, being a, being a grown man can actually be really cool. I want to be like that. It's important for you know, men who are further along in their journey to open their world to the younger men in in whatever forms that takes. Because, you know, this guy uh, who we're talking about, he, he didn't sit me down and talk to me about life. He didn't try to solve my problems. He didn't try to, you know, find out what I was feeling or what was bothering me. He just was another man that I could walk with. And I had fun and I, I realized that I was just taking notes, how he lived his life. And the most important thing was how he, he, I felt like he opened his heart and he was, he was enjoying life. That was very important for me to see how a man can open his heart and enjoy his life. And that was all I really needed at that time. So this, this primal method that you've developed, so you, one part of it is getting men out there, being action-oriented, mirroring you know, positive masculinity, positive manliness to them so they can see what that looks like, feels like. But there's also this other part you talk about that young men need, but they're not getting, is this idea of emphatic challenge. What, is, what do you mean by emphatic challenge? Mm-hmm. I mean being opposed and feeling a pressure that is exerted on them. In the book, I give the analogy of when I was in Japan with my wife, we were in the train and we were looking out the window and I saw these, these green bushes that looked like they were, they were like in pixel. They were animated. And I, I said, what are those bushes? And they said, those are not bushes. Those are trees. And they actually, if you leave those trees to grow, just to grow, like wherever they want and however they want, those will become 30 to 50 feet high. And we, we prune those consciously and constantly to pack the color and the flavor into them. And this is what young men are missing. They don't have people over them that are, that are showing them that are kind of, and it's a tough process because a lot of young men, they do have people that are, you know, riding their back, complaining, lecturing them. That is not what, what I'm talking about. And, and that's not what emphatic challenge is. Emphatic challenge, of course, is like a, a level of opposition. You need to be challenging young men. And I would argue men in general, we just need to be challenged in order to bring out the best of ourselves. And related to this idea of, of emphatic challenge. So, you know, giving, giving young men, Mm -hmm. like, you know, calling them out basically and seeing if they can step up to it. But you also have this idea of holding the line. 
Right. What is that and how is that related to emphatic challenge? Yeah. And I, by the way, I want to say about the emphatic challenge, like what that ultimately means for me is when I meet these young men that are, let's say between 18, 25, it's looking at them and challenging their view of the world and themselves. Like everybody has these hidden beliefs on how, how they believe life should go. And my emphatic challenge to them is where did you get the idea that that's how life works? Where did you get the idea that you're just going to snap your fingers and have this amazing life? Who gave you that idea? Or, or maybe I'm coming across a little judgmental right now, but it's a genuine curiosity. Where did you get that idea? When? And most importantly, is it working? Is it working for you? There comes a point in a young man's life where he has to look at how he approaches life and he's got to be willing to, to ask whether the way that he approaches life works, you know? Why, why did I stay the course when I was at that, uh, bakery getting, you know, bossed around by a, a, a kid six, you know, 16 years old It's because I saw that my way didn't work. Like me thinking that I was this top dog and I was so great. Well, if I was so great, then how come I'm here? So for me, it was constantly humbling myself and learning what are the ways of the world. And to do that, you you have to seek out men who are really making their life work, right? You you meet with a lot of people, right? And everybody's telling you your their ideas, right? Sure. But how, are those ideas working? Some of them are, and by a lot of them not. Some are, and some aren't. But how do we know if it's working or not? You know, you have to, you have to really look at whether those ideas that somebody's telling you are, that whether they work, do they make this person happy, truly happy? Are they leading this person down a path in their life that they are excited about that's evolving? So for me, emphatic challenge means let's get real. Let's get honest. And Hey, by the way, I'm going to get honest too. So I'm not saying that I'm fully evolved and that all my ideas are set in stone. So I will tell the young man and they, they appreciate this. I say, listen, I'm, we're, we're climbing the same mountain, you and I. I might be 10 feet ahead of you or I might be 10 years ahead of you. I don't know. But let me tell you something. This mountain is an unforgiving mountain or maybe not. It's a ruthless mountain, but it, it, it's forgiving, but it's ruthless. It doesn't get any easier. So I'm always challenging my beliefs. So that's the piece about the emphatic challenge. Hold the line. You know, if, if you're going to try to do anything difficult in life, somebody has to prevent you from hitting the escape hatch when it gets difficult. And I'd be willing to bet if there are young men listening to this, if your life is not working for you, you can almost guarantee 
It's because when things get tough, you give up. Now, you can, you can give up in a thousand different ways and you can tell yourself whatever you want, but the bottom line is you're giving up. You're, you're not putting your full self in this experience. And when things got difficult, you gave up. And when that happens, you have to have people there that they, they are there to support you to keep going. You want to know a funny story? All remember in the book where I said that, that team captain, he challenged me and, and he, he brought out the best of me. Right. Right. I went home to my mother that day and I, I had already concluded. I said, football is not for me. I said, this is, <laughs> this is, I, I'm glad I ran through, you know, that line and, and, Thank you very much. I've learned all the lessons I needed to learn. And I come up with my excuse. I was going to play basketball all fall and I was going to practice. I had it all mapped out. And she looked at me, said, you are not quitting. You made a decision to play football and you're going to play this season. And I was, no, damn, you know, she held the line. I went back. I figured it out because the people in my life did not allow me to quit, right? This is a chronic pattern in the work that I do. The minute that you push people, they want to give up. And their parents or whoever's in their life, they either believe that nonsense or they hold the line and say, no, you're not going to give up. If you're not allowed to give up, what happens is you end up facing the feelings, your feelings, that you are trying to run from. You're not running from football or running from your marriage or running from your job. You're running from yourself. You do not yet have the ability to contain all of your feelings. And you've become a specialist at opting out, choosing the easier path, because then you get to feel something that's better. But those feelings are all you. So if people are, hold the line, then the person gets to feel all of themselves. Okay. So we've talked about young men, the emerging, I like this, emerging men mm-hmm. need uh, action. They yep. need to be out there and exploring the world and, and seeing what, you know, f- you know, like a, an authentic, positive masculinity looks like by having a mentor. And this mentor is going to hold the line. They're going to challenge them. But then also one of your goals as, as a counselor with these guys, when you work with them, is to eventually for them to develop their own circle of male friends. Mm-hmm. That's not just you. I mean, mm-hmm. this guy, you're, you're kind of like their friend, you know, that you become their friend. Mm-hmm. But you want them to have a circle of friends that might not necessarily involve you as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I become their friend. I become their brother. I'm helping them to resolve the barriers that they have to connecting with another human being at a meaningful level. Once they learn that, or as they learn that, because, you know, each person connects to the world and connects to other people in their own unique way. And the only way to learn how you connect with other people is through experience. And you have to have somebody. 
when I, when I wrote the book, I realized that what I'm really trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to become a master at connection. Um, I basically say to these parents when they come to me and they say, you, you don't know our son. He's so lost. He doesn't connect with anybody. He's this, he's that. And I know, and I tell them, I say, I guarantee you that I can connect with your son. That's, that's what I believe. I'm going to be able to connect to the unconnectable through that process. That person teaches themselves how to connect. And then the goal, of course, is that they have to learn how to make connections in their own life. They have to replicate it. But first, they got to see what that looks like in order for them to do that. Yeah. And they have to more than see it. They have to feel it. They have to manifest it. They have to feel it in their being. What is it like to connect to another person in a meaningful way? Because a a lot of guys, they have people in their life, right? Friends, quote unquote, but they're not really connecting to them. They're not really creating nourishing connections. So even if you're surrounded by people, you still could be missing out on the beauty and the power of connection. And that's what I'm teaching them. Right. And in the end goal of all this, like, you know, this hopefully what people get to, and again, like we said, this could take months, it could take years for it that's to happen. Right. But, the, but the end goal is to have that young man that we talked about earlier, sort of like flat, no spark, right. like fill them with like, they want, like, you want that guy to have some vitality. Like you call it generative or creative. You call it like they have a male womb, basically. Mm-hmm. They want to create in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is the ultimate goal. And like you said, we are in the darkness of the night, leaning, hunching over a little spark of fire that we found, and we're just gently blowing on it. We're just gently, we're, we're literally, our ears are to the earth, blowing on this, cradling this fire. And then the young man sees that that's what we're doing together. We're, we're blowing on we're gently blowing on his fire to live. And that's what I mean by the difference between the rational, the dialogic. It, this is deeper than logic. If you ask a man, you know, questions about, you know, I don't know, like, should you be living at home with your parents? Should you have a job? Do you want to have a purpose in your life? They can say the right answers to that, but it doesn't mean that they're activating their primal power, that that will to live, that hunger, that inspiration. For me, all the work that I'm doing with these young men is to try to light that fire. That's the fire that's going to keep burning through the night. Well, Greg, let's say there's someone's listening to this podcast. Maybe they're, they're a young guy. They've got maybe they have some sort of addiction. Maybe they don't, but they still they see themselves in that guy we described. Sort of just no no spark. Like what's like the first, what's something that someone could do today to start you know igniting that fire, blowing that little spark that they might have. Well, what I did when I was in that position 
is I made a deal with myself. I made a deal that I was going to appreciate my life for one year. And by appreciate my life, I meant I was going to do what I needed to do to get my life a little bit better each day. I was going to literally appreciate it. And I wasn't going to put any criteria around it. I wasn't going to say, oh, by in three months, I'm going to be at level 100. I just said, I'm just going to tilt this thing five degrees, three degrees. So what you young men can do is you can just make a decision to be thankful for the fact that you have life and appreciate your life day by day for a year and read the book because I wrote this book for you to try to give you some tools that I believe our culture is not giving you. Greggy, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? The website. So we have Go With The Bro, Brother Gregory, gowiththebro.com. And the book is available everywhere that books are sold. Fantastic. Well, Gregory, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. My guest today is Gregory Kufalkos. He's the author of the book, The Primal Method. It's available on amazon.com. You can also learn more about his work at his website, gowiththebro.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash emerging men. We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding all your list that we have a podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.